Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It's written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now, we left off at these verses last week at the end of our study. Uh, I tried to include them in the Tuesday portion of the study and partway into it realized I've just bitten off more than I can chew and there's not time. And so you didn't get as much as they did last time. I touched on these verses, but I'm going to do our study from here tonight and then we're going to move into the cursing of the fig tree and we'll end up with that tonight. So in verse 13, Jesus quotes from two Old Testament passages, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. Now, for years, I knew he quoted from one when he said, it's written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. But the second part, when he said, you've made it a den of robbers, I got to be honest with you, I thought he just was making a statement. It wasn't until later on, as I began to study it more and study the scriptures more, I came to realize his first part where he says, it's written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, is a quote from Isaiah. But then when he says, you've made it a den of robbers, that's a quote from the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to look at both of those passages. And both quotes, though, are saying two different things. Go real quickly with me to Isaiah 56. In quoting the first part about my house shall be called a house of prayer, he's actually quoting from a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 56, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8, where the prophecy speaks of a coming day when during the millennial kingdom, Jew and Gentile alike will equally be able to worship God in the temple. Look at Isaiah 56 verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, and I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So here we see the prophecy about the fact that when he comes and sets up his kingdom and declares his righteousness, not just the Jews, but also the foreigners and the Gentiles are going to be welcome in the temple to worship him. Now, I'm going to give you a little quiz, though. It's a tough one, but it's not that hard. Have you noticed how he kept saying it over and over, those who keep my Sabbaths? What does that mean? 
Very good. Rest in him. You do hopefully understand that the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 makes very clear that to observe the Sabbath is not to not do any work on Saturday. But to observe the Sabbath is to understand the purpose of the Sabbath. And if the scripture says that Jesus, or God, and Jesus is God, and he was a part of creation, he rested from his work on the seventh day. And he taught them to rest from their work. But it was a picture of who? Jesus. And putting our faith in him and resting from our work in order to save ourselves. Folks, there is denomination that teaches that Sabbath is still Saturday and all this kind of stuff. And there are people that try to make you observe Sabbath rules, even though Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Don't let anyone judge you on whether or not you keep a new moon festival or a Sabbath day, for the reality has been found in Christ. Those are a shadow of things to come. The reality has been found in Christ. When you and I cease from working to get ourselves into heaven and we put our full faith in Jesus Christ, We've observed the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath has been met, and we've kept His covenant. And His covenant is what? The new covenant that's in the blood of Christ. And so this prophecy, as Jesus is cleaning the temple out for the second time in His ministry, He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Because in saying you've made it a den of robbers, He quoted from an Old Testament prophecy about the coming destruction of the temple. And you're going to see that in our study tonight. In Jeremiah 7, go ahead and look at verses uh, 1 through 15. In Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15, look at this prophecy. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And here are the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, uh, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. But behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast all your kinsmen and the offspring." Of Ephraim. So when he said, you've made it a den of robbers, he's referring to this passage. And this passage is saying that God's going to do what to the temple? Destroy it because of their disobedience. Don't trust in, we have the temple of the Lord. Don't say we have Abraham as our father. 
Don't rest in all these things if you're not going to walk in obedience to me. And he quoted from a prophecy. First off, he quotes from Isaiah how that one day this will be a place, the new temple, that's going to be built during the millennial kingdom. It's going to be a place where Jew and Gentile worship together. And secondly, because of your disobedience, I'm going to destroy this temple. Go to Luke 21. We're not going to spend too much time. We're just going to look at two verses here. Luke 21, verses 5 and 6. But it's a something that Jesus says during that last week of his life, between when we're studying here in Matthew 21 and his crucifixion. In Luke 21, verses 5 and 6, we see, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So during that week, you're going to see tonight, that he'll go into Jerusalem, but then he'll go back to Bethany at night, then come back into Jerusalem the next day, and so on, during the last week of his life. But during that last week, after he's already cleaned the temple out, he's being shown the temple and how beautiful it is, and he says, let me just tell you something that I've already seen and known. There's going to be a time when there's not even one stone left on top of another. And if you've ever done your study and done the research, you'll find that in AD 70, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they burned everything, and they, if you remember, the temple was overlaid with gold, all the walls and ceilings, and it was an amazing sight, and when it all burned, the gold melted into the cracks, and to get at all the gold, they took all the stones apart to get to the gold after it had been destroyed, and not one stone was left upon another. But going back to Matthew 21 from these verses, we also see Jesus being confronted because actually, when it says children, the Greek says young boys. And it's most likely these young boys, it's their first Passover. You know, once they turn 12, 13, they have to go every year to, be, to the Passover and feast in Jerusalem, according to the law. And some of these young boys are there and children are there praising him, but they're also calling him the Messiah. Look again at verse 14. And the blind came and the lame came to him in the temple. This is Matthew 21, verse 14. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What were the, what were the children saying he was when they said son of David? Messiah. You're the Messiah. So these kids are all saying, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. And, 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 and you can picture the chief priests and the Pharisees going, do you hear what's going on? I mean, it's one thing that you deceive some of these people, but now you've deceived the children. Look at what Jesus does in response. Many people have missed this. In response, he takes them to Psalm 8. We're going to go there. And he quotes from Psalm 8, the verse that says, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have ordained praise. But in doing so, he claims to be God. Go to Psalm 8. And I want you to see, this whole psalm is very, very clearly a psalm of praise to God and God alone. The whole psalm is a praise to God. Look at Psalm chapter 8, and we're going to read the whole psalm because it's just nine verses. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You, God, have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? By the way, that first him is plural in the, in the Hebrew. And the son of man that you care for him. 
That hymn, by the way, is singular. And all the other hymns now are going to be singular. You have made him, singular, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, some of you could say, wait a minute, doesn't that all apply to us? He's given mankind dominion over the earth and all that. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and you'll see that the Hebrew writer brings out that that prophecy is referring to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, before I go any further, where are they quoting from? Psalm 8. By the way, you want to be encouraged? The Hebrew writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said in verse 5, or verse 6, it's written somewhere. Isn't that awesome? By the way, if you study the book of Hebrews, you'll see him do it a couple of times. And another time that he quotes, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. I mean, don't get all freaked out if you don't know where all the addresses are. They didn't have, that's true. That's a good point. They didn't have addresses there. But he definitely could have said in Psalms. But he doesn't even say in Psalms. Keep reading, though. And we'll, we'll finish, start again in verse 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control, and at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely who? Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Again, if you read the Hebrew, you would notice this first hymn is plural, but then the Son of Man, him, 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 were all singular. And the same thing here in the Greek as well. The Hebrew writer is pointing out that that prophecy, praising God for his creation, the work of his hands, and this son of man, it was all a praise to God. So Jesus says, when they all say, do you, hey, Jesus, do you realize, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus says, yeah. Have you guys never read? I love that. Because remember, the chief priests and the scribes were proud of the fact that they had pretty much memorized the whole Old Testament. Guys, have you never read? Psalm 8, where it says, Out of the mouths of infants and babes you've ordained praise. Now they know full well that that psalm was written in praise to who? To God. And so when Jesus says, These kids are fulfilling Psalm 8 in praising me, what was he claiming? He's claiming to be God. I've heard so many people say, You Christians try to make Jesus God. Jesus never claimed to be God. Good grief! He even himself said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was even born, I am. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus, when he said, the, when the woman in John 4 said, we've been told that this Messiah is going to come, all these prophecies about the Son of David and all this one, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And when he claimed to be the Messiah, he was claiming to be God himself because the prophecy said he would be God. And here in Psalm 8, he claims 
that praise as to him. And then the Hebrew writer points out, it was to him. Now, I want to deal with something real quick. Have you noticed how Jesus just keeps giving everyone just enough information to understand and believe if they're willing to search the scriptures to see if they're true? I mean, could not Jesus have stood there and given the full Bible study from the scriptures proving everything? Could not Jesus have done many things like Satan tried to get him to do by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple or turning the stones into bread or all those things? Couldn't Jesus have convinced them that he was the Messiah? He, he, remember, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear are those who are humble enough. And that's what I want you to hear. Listen, the scripture is very clear. If people are willing to humble themselves and see if these things be true, God will reveal himself. If people don't really want to know, the Bible says it'll be hidden from their eyes. Write this down. Look at it later on. Hebrews eleven six 6 says this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Go to John chapter 20, though. I'm going to show you how if you truly want to believe, God will reveal himself to you. Go to John chapter 20. And I'm going to show you an episode that's going to seem a little almost contradictory to what I just said. But I want you to see how it isn't. Go to John chapter 20. Look at verses 24 through 29. This is after Jesus' resurrection. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Isn't that interesting? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, to Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now I made a statement to you that I'm going to make it again. If people are willing to humble themselves and see if these things really be true, God will reveal himself to them. Scriptures say that. If people don't want to really know, it'll be hidden from them. How come Jesus went out of his way to come and reveal himself to Thomas? It looks like Thomas didn't want to believe. I'll, unless I touch his hands and his side, I'll never believe. Does anybody see in the passage we just read the proof that he wanted to believe? And he really wanted to see if these things were true? It's there. Look again at verse 26. Oh, sorry, 25. No, I was right, 26. Look at verse 26. Yeah, eight days later, he's still in that room. If he didn't want to believe, he would have said, see you guys, I'm out. But the fact that eight days later, he's still in that room. He's still hanging around. And folks, there are going to be people that come to your churches that are wrestling with whether or not it's true. And you just encourage them, look, I can promise you, if you want to believe and you want to see, God will reveal himself to you in a way that's only real. And you'll understand it in ways that we might not even understand. But he knows you and he'll reveal himself to you. All we ask is that you be willing and humble to say, Lord, show me if this is true. I want to believe this. I want this to be true. If you don't, 
it'll be hidden from your eyes. But Thomas wanted to believe. He wanted it to be true. That's why he's still there eight days later. That's why he's still there. And what does Jesus do? He comes and does exactly what Thomas needs to reveal himself to him. Go with me to Luke 19. You're in John chapter 20. Back up to Luke chapter 19. Look at verses 41 and 42. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Speaking to the city of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, he said, it's hidden from you now. In Romans chapter 11, they've experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Again, if people are willing to humble themselves and see if these things be true, God will reveal himself. If people don't want to know, it'll be hidden from them. And that's why God it could easily have proven it. Jesus could have proven it, but he gave them a little bit here, a little bit there, quoting from the scriptures, showing them the word of God. Everything's there. Everything you need is in this book. It's right there. But we got to tell people, read it, read it, read it, and ask God, and he will. If you diligently seek him, he will reveal himself to you. Now let's go back to Matthew 21 and look at, let's look at verses 18 through 22. This will be the section we wrap up with tonight. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. It says, In the morning, as he, Jesus, was returning to the city, remember he, he left Jerusalem and went to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, before we go any deeper into this passage, knowing the context of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree and knowing a little bit of horticultural background will help us interpret what's happened here. Fig trees, first of all, do not produce fruit until three years after they're planted. You do a little research, you'll find. You plant a fig tree, you will not get any fruit until three years later. That's just the way it works, the way God's designed it. All right? By the way, that's going to make a passage later on that we get to in our study make a little more sense. But then, once it's been three years since it was planted, a fig tree will produce fruit twice a year. Twice a year. And interestingly enough, we're going to go to Mark's account of this passage. Go to Mark's account in chapter 11, Mark 11. You'll see that this was not actually the season for figs. That actually is in June, over a month away. Look at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Mark chapter 11, verse 12, says this. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, that's always bothered me. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree if it wasn't the season for figs? Well, again, a little background will help us. You see, the figs 
would only come out when the leaves would appear. In other words, when it was going to produce figs, it would produce leaves at the exact same time. The fig tree wouldn't have leaves, but when a fig tree produced leaves, it was showing that it was time for figs. And so if it produced leaves, figs came with it. So even though this fig tree, it's not the season for figs, what was it doing? It was acting like it was going to produce figs. Jesus sees a fig tree and it's got leaves, which means there's figs. So he's hungry. He goes to look for figs and there are none on it. It was giving false information or it was appearing to be fruitful. And it wasn't. Oh, by the way. I don't know if you know this. We're not going to take the time to look at that. The Bible describes false teachers in that way as well. If you go to the book of Jude and look at verse 12, you'll see these descriptions of false teachers, and they're described as waterless clouds. In other words, uh, a cloud, when it comes, you and you're wanting rain, and you see a cloud, you're like, oh, dude, awesome, and then no rain comes from it. It appears to be helpful, but it's not. He also said that he describes false teachers as shepherds only feed themselves. The shepherd's job was to feed the sheep and to feed the flock. But if the shepherd doesn't feed the sheep, it appears to be helpful, but he's not. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 10. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Jesus is, I'm sorry, John the Baptist is baptizing. And it says, when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So these guys come to his baptism like they're going to get baptized too. Just so they'll look good to the crowd. They might have even marched in one of the, you know, protest marches or whatever to be in solidarity. The crowds are repenting. And John the Baptist said, uh, don't act like you are going to repent. Let's see some evidence of your repentance first before I baptize you. Let's see some fruit. Jesus wasn't acting impetuously, folks, when he cursed the fig tree. He was actually giving an object lesson. Because Israel is often, is often described in the Old Testament as a fig tree. You're going to see tonight and in the following weeks when we get together again some more, we continue on in our study, you're going to see that Israel's described as a fig tree, a vineyard. We're going to see a little bit of that tonight. Go to, excuse me, Joel chapter 1. Go to Joel chapter 1 and look at verses 1 through 7. If you're not quite sure where Joel is, it's not that hard to find because most of you can find Daniel. And right after Daniel's Hosea, and then right after Hosea is Joel. In Joel chapter 1, listen to verses 1 through 7. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my what? My fig tree. 
It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Here he describes the judgment that's going to come during the end of the tribulation period on the nation of Israel. And he describes Israel as a vine and a fig tree. And because they, God's fig tree, Israel, were acting like they would respond and produce fruit, but he knew they wouldn't. In the cursing of the fig tree, he's actually predicting judgment upon them that was also predicted in the Old Testament because of their unfruitfulness. So when he cursed the fig tree, it's an object lesson. By the way, you all notice how the nation of Israel right now is appearing to produce fruit? What had they just said as he rode into Jerusalem the day before? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the son of David. We believe, we believe, we believe. And Jesus knew their hearts that it wasn't real. Oh, you're putting out leaves. But there's not going to be any real fruit because I know this is phony. Go to Isaiah 51. And Isaiah, sorry, not Isaiah 51, Isaiah 5, verse 1. And Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through verse 7. You'll see the prophecy that God said that judgment was going to come to Israel, the, vi- the fig tree or the vineyard, because of their unfruitfulness. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do, do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Are you starting to sense all this stuff coming together? Remember the prophecy in Jeremiah? You think you're okay, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you know how to talk the game, but I know your hearts and you guys don't do justice, you don't do righteousness, you bloodshed. Because of that, a judgment's coming. You've given off the appearance of believing and responding, but it's just leaves, it's no fruit. Go to Luke 13. All of a sudden, Luke 13 makes so much more sense now. Look at Luke 13. Look at verses 6 through 9. In Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, isn't that interesting? For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, leave it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. By the way, how long was Jesus' ministry in Israel? Three years. And he says, give it one more year. By the way, if you do a little research, do a little math, you'll find out that the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel wasn't until AD 70. He gave them more than just another year. 
but he also is God and he knows. Go to Luke 20. Go to Luke 20. Look at verses 9 through 18. He's going to tell them another parable. Luke 9, sorry, 20, verse 9. Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, saying, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, Then what then is that that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Over and over and over, Jesus has been giving them the warnings, the picture, the vineyard, the prophecy in Isaiah, the prophecy in Jeremiah, the parable in Luke 13, and again now, and they know full well what he just said here, because they said, "Uh uh-uh-uh, no way. So when he cursed the fig tree, because it produced leaves, even though it wasn't time, the season for figs, it produced leaves like it was going to respond and produce fruit. Was he being impetuous? No. He was giving an object lesson. But watch what happens next. Both prophecy, uh, sorry, both stories, not prophecy, both stories from Matthew and Mark point out how the Jesus' disciples noticed the withering of the fig tree. Mark actually shows us, though, that they didn't notice it till the next day. As we read it in Matthew, it looks like it says it withered it once and they noticed it. It reads like they saw it right away. Go with me to Mark 11 and you'll see that actually they don't realize it till the next day. Go to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to, again, look at verses 12 through 14, and then we're going to jump to verses 20 through 26. So on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry and suing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jump to verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, this is the next day. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, Jesus takes their astonishment about the fig tree withering in a totally different direction. I mean, we've just laid out for you how he was giving an object lesson about the judgment that's going to be coming to Israel because of their rejection. They're appearing to produce fruit, but not producing fruit. And it's obvious that's what he was doing. And the disciples the next day realized that that tree withered instantly. And they say to him, Lord, look what happened to the fig tree. And Jesus doesn't say everything that I just said. He takes them in a totally different direction and starts to use this as a teaching 
about faith. And folks, I don't know if you've ever caught this or not, but if you ever go back and look, from this point on, Jesus really doesn't talk that much to the people of Israel anymore. There's a little bit here and a little bit there that I pointed out a couple, but he's spending most of the time now during this last week doing what? Getting his disciples ready for the next age, if you will, the church age. You're going to see him in the upper room teaching about the coming Holy Spirit and the I'm the vine, you're the branches and the abiding relationship and preparing them for what's to come. Is the, the time for Israel is coming to a close. And instead of teaching about the judgment of Israel, which he could have done, he now uses this as an opportunity to teach them about faith. Now, as you read both Matthew and Mark's account, you could easily take those words and make it say, if you believe it, you ask and you have it. Isn't that what it says? Again, we don't build our doctrine from a passage of Scripture. You build your doctrine from the whole of Scripture. Remember, Jesus has taught us, and I'm going to show you this from Scripture, faith cannot begin with us. Faith is only faith if it's rooted in what God has said. I'm going to give you a passage of Scripture to write down. You can quote it with me because I'll get you started. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says this. Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Okay, so faith comes when we hear and when we hear what Jesus has said, what God has said. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we see a full teaching on faith. And we really need to take a quick look at it. I would love to preach a whole sermon just on the first six verses, but I'm not going to do that tonight, but I want to. It's one of my favorites. In, in Hebrews, chapter 11, look at verses. We're going to read through 12, but we're going to look real closely at verse 1 and 2 for following here, and 3. But now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, and by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, he begins to lay out a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things that you're hoping for and the conviction of things not seen. But he doesn't leave it there and say, if you just hope for it enough and you just believe it enough, it'll happen. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians out there today who say, if you just speak it, it comes into existence. You ever heard that kind of teaching? It's not what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to prove it to you tonight. But at the same time, I don't want you to miss out on the fact that Jesus is saying that there's a lot of stuff that we're missing out on because we don't pray in faith. We don't really understand faith. And folks, yes, there are those who have taken this to an unbiblical realm. But I want to challenge you. Don't be one of those people that misses out on all that God has. He says you don't have James chapter four because you don't ask. There's a lot that is available to us. If we knew what God has said and we believed what God has said and we ask him, we would have it. But we miss out. But look at what he says. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Let me ask you this question. How do we know that God created the world by just speaking? How do we know that? I mean, does science prove it? Actually, it does. But... How do we know? Oh, very good. Because you believe in what God what? Said. You want to have some fun? Seriously, go do this on your own. Go back one day, sit down with a highlighter, and go back to Genesis chapter 1, and just highlight every time God put his name in the first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God. 
And God saw that he made. And God saw that it was good. And then he, God did this. And God said that. And God, By the way, I've done it. If you go chapter 1 into the first few verses of chapter 2 where he finishes the creation account, I think if my number is correct, God put his name 32 times. We have faith in what God has said. Faith doesn't begin until you know what God has said. He then talks about how faith, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. All right. And then, and then he goes into how faith Enoch was taken up so he shouldn't see death. He was found, uh, not found because God had taken him because he was commended as having pleased God. Now, let me just real quickly point out to you that when he mentions Abel, what he's teaching us about faith in Abel, the first thing he says is that faith begins with what God has said. Secondly, he said faith actually has no back, uh, backup plan. Abel was not commended because his was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was a grain sacrifice, which I've heard preachers say for years. You ever heard that? Well, it's because his was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was a, a grain sacrifice and God needed it. It had to be a blood. No. Hang on for a second. Uh, the law hadn't even been given until hundreds and hundreds of years later. And on top of that, when the law came, was there not grain offerings? Actually, if you go back and read the account in Genesis chapter 4, you'll see that actually Cain brought some of what he had. Abel brought the first, the best, the fatlings. In other words, the part of his flock that he would use to restock the herd, he gave God his best. And God, because he trusted that God would take care of him, when God said, well, isn't that what God tells us to do with our tithes? Take that 10% and give it to me first. And I will, with the 90%, take care of all the rest of your bills. But I want you to give it to me first. Okay, God, I'm trusting you. When we tithe, we're saying, Lord, I trust that you're going to take my 90% and make it pay all my bills. Faith doesn't begin unless God has spoken. You can't believe something and then God has to do it. That's not faith. If you know what God said. Secondly, faith has no backup plan. And then the third thing he teaches from Enoch is, well, if you go back and read Genesis 5 about the account of Enoch, it's just a couple of verses. What's written in there twice about Enoch? Good for you, Jeremy. He walked with God. That's what we can learn from Enoch. And that's the third thing that God teaches us from here about faith. One, faith doesn't begin unless God has spoken. Faith has no parachute, no backup plan. And real faith continues every single day. You don't just, oh, I trust him as my savior. no. You don't have real faith in this. You're trusting him on a daily basis. You walk with God. Now, I'm going to keep reading. And I want you to stop me when you see where it points out that their faith was in what he said. All right. Verse six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God. Nobody stopped me. Do you see it? Being warned by God. Noah didn't build a boat until God spoke. Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. Very good. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac. By the way, you, you skipped the word promise. And Jacob heirs with him of the same what? Promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city who has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Again, their faith was in what God has said. But you not only need to know what God has said, you need to believe it, listen, and ask him to do it. When Jesus is teaching them about faith, he says, guys, if you know what God has said and you ask him and you don't doubt, it'll happen. It will happen. Go with me to 1 John chapter 5. By the way, in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, it says, Vanity you lacks wisdom, little mask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. But then it says, but when you ask, what? Don't doubt, right? That person who doubts will not receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. But in 1 John chapter 5, look at what the scripture says here. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. That's why there's this caveat, if you will, this qualifier in this passage. It says in verse 14 of 1 John 5, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, <clears throat> he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. By the way, here's where I'm going I'm to take you to a graduate level question. So if you can't answer it, that's okay. But I'm going to give you a graduate level question. <clears throat> Jerry's actually paying attention because we didn't do this last night. So he doesn't, he gets the answer tonight. Is it God's will that everyone be saved? So can we then believe that if I really, really, really want so-and-so in my family to be saved because it's God's will that everyone be saved, I can just pray and it'll happen if I believe it? Okay, you're right. The answer is no, but why? Because of what God has said. Is it his will? Yes, but he's also said that he will not force himself. He has given man a choice. And so you have to be real careful that you don't say, well, it's God's will. Therefore, if I ask, but there's nothing wrong with asking and praying and believing. But you have to use the whole of what God has said. He's also said that he's given man a choice. He's not going to make us puppets. As we wrap up tonight, I want you to understand that Jesus is not teaching that if we want something bad enough, all we have to do is ask and believe. And here's why. That would not only go against scripture, it would go against Jesus' own example himself. I'm going to show you two passages that we'll wrap up with tonight and we'll pick up next week. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has just been finished talking about this guy he knows who was taken to see paradise. He says, whether he's in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And he heard things that can't be told. On behalf of this man, I'm going to boast, he says. But, I, but And then... In verse 7, we find out that it was him. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. By the way, before I break this down, let me ask you a quick question. Did Paul understand believing faith and the power of it? Of course he did. I mean, God used him to heal people, raise the dead. If anybody understood prayer of faith, Paul did. And he pleaded with God three times that whatever this thorn was, that it would go away. By the way, too many people for too many years have argued over what Paul's thorn was. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. So just leave it alone. Put yours in the blank. But he pleaded with God three times, and God's answer was no. Paul, I've blessed you with a lot, and to keep you from becoming conceited so I can use you, you're going to have to struggle with this the rest of your life. But my grace will be sufficient for you. Paul said, okay, then I accept what he said, and I'm going to embrace it, and I'll just be weak the rest of my life. By the way, you'll notice if you look at the scriptures that anybody that God wants to use, he has to break them and humble them. I heard a preacher years ago preach a whole series of messages on, on Jacob. And he got to the part where Jacob wrestled with God and God put his hip out of joint and how the scripture says from that point on, Jacob walked with a limp. And he made an amazing statement and I, it stuck with me and I, I, I just I thank God for it. He said, Beware of any preacher or any person that doesn't walk with a limp. Beware of anyone that acts like they've got it all figured out and they're all that impressive. He said, no. Beware of anyone that doesn't walk with a limp. But go to Matthew 26. That's why, by the way, Paul says things like, I am not, didn't come with you with flashy speech. For worldly wisdom. I came in weakness, fear, humility, so that the power of God might rest on me. And you put your faith in the power of God, not in man's wisdom. Look at Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think you know the answer to this one. Do you think Jesus understood the prayer of faith? He pleaded three times that if there's any way that he could avoid the cross, he was for it. What was the father's answer? Yeah, my, the answer, his answer was no, but listen to me. I want you to hear something. We probably know, and you might be one of these people. 
We know of people that have kind of walked away from God because they asked him for something and he said no and they got mad. I asked God and she died. Or he died. Or I didn't get the job. Or whatever, put it, fill it in. We know people that have walked away because he didn't do it the way they wanted. Folks, any doctrine that says if you say it, God has to do it, makes you God and not God, God. Yet at the same time, if you really know the heart of God, if you ask and believe and he says no, that is best. Aren't you glad the Father told Jesus no? <laughs> we celebrate it every Sunday, don't we? We sing songs and we praise and we, we celebrate, we hear messages on it, we study scripture on Wednesday nights. Let God be God. But don't miss out on some things that he's wanting to give you, but you didn't ask. Pray. Believe. Know what he's promised. There's a lot of great promises of God in his word. Oh, by the way, some of you probably have felt sometimes lonely. But hasn't he promised that he'll never leave you nor forsake you? What's happened is, is you stopped believing what he said. That's what got you down in the dumps. Hasn't he said that he'll supply all of your needs? Have there been times where you wonder and you have fear and anxiety? Because you stopped believing what he said. See, we, we want to see, I just speak it and that mountain jumps into the ocean. Why don't you start with believing what he's said in your personal life? And I promise you, I think you remember the homework I gave you a few months ago or weeks ago? Begin on a daily basis to ask God little by little to give you a little more understanding of all that you've already received, the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance in the saints, and his mighty power available to us who believe. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Folks, it's time the world saw that kind of a Christian. It's available, but we need to believe it. I love you. We'll see you next week.